Good morning, church. We're in this series, New, Not Normal. And before we get into it, I want to pray, and I want to ask you to pray with me, okay? Jesus, thanks for today. We ask that you would give us the grace of your presence, that we'd be able to feel that, that you would free our minds and open up our minds to what it is that you want to teach us. Just we ask that your power would transform us. That we would not move into tomorrow as just the same normal experience that we had before, but that we'd be transformed by you. So we ask this confidently in your powerful name. Amen. Well, this week we're talking about this word nostalgia. And the dictionary defines it this way. A sentimental longing or wishful affection for the past, typically for a period or place with happy personal memories. Every time I see my mom, she reminds me how nostalgic I am. I'm always talking about the way that we grew up or remembering stories. I remember buildings as we pass them. I'm very sentimental, very nostalgic. A lot of the foods that I eat, as I eat it, I just remember a different time that I had it. And a lot of times my favorite foods are tied to good memories. When a song comes on, I remember who I heard the song with and And that's how I kind of pick my favorite songs and dates of a calendar come on. Oftentimes I remember previous years of that same date. And it serves some good. It's been a long time since my dad passed, but I can still remember what he looks like. Even more important than that, I still remember what it felt like to be with him. My body remembers how at peace I was and how loved I felt as we would play cribbage or we would talk, or truthfully, we would even just sit quiet next to one another. But as there's some good in nostalgia, there's some danger as well. See, nostalgia can skew our perception. Some of those songs I was telling you about that I love, some of my favorite songs, if someone who's never heard it before and doesn't have the memory attached listens, they'd probably say they're horrible songs. The chord progression is pretty plain or boring, the lyrics are pretty poor, and yet... They're tied to a memory for me. So nostalgically, I love the song. I've talked to you a lot about the food lefse, the flatbread of Norway that my family would eat. And reality is, I don't know if it tastes good or not. I know that it tastes like Christmas. And it tastes like being with my grandmother. And so for me, it's wonderful. Because it reminds me of being a child. Actually, when I was in like high school and I had access to Lefsa all the time. I didn't eat, eat it that much. But now, now that it's really memory, I'd eat it every time it's in front of me. It's not just me. I visited a friend in, in West Virginia and sat with his family, and his family was telling me about this thing called a pepperoni roll. And as they described it, it honestly didn't sound very good. It's, it's a lot of bread with pepperoni and this mushroom-like thing called a ramp, and it's room temperature, And it's just that. And they were so excited about this food, but I found out that they were excited about the food because there is a memory and a history attached to it. You see, coal miners would eat pepperoni rolls. And they'd go deep in the the mines with it wrapped up, and as they'd get hungry, they'd unwrap it, and it didn't need refrigeration, it didn't need a cooler. They were able to be sustained by this because, well, it didn't spoil And so this story of generation after generation being in the coal mines, well, that's a nostalgic way of eating 
this pepperoni and mushroom inside of a piece of bread. Interestingly for me, I went to their house and hearing stories of coal mining kind of changed my perception of coal mining a little bit. I'd always just thought of coal, is it, is it good for the environment or bad for the environment? And yet in that place, as we talked about coal mining, and the same question, is it good or bad for the environment, it became more complex because it also was a story of well, their family of their community, of their neighbors, of people who had died in the coal mines and given their lives to the coal mines. And sure, it still isn't good for the environment, but it changes the story a little bit. It gives me some sensitivity. Helps me understand some of the nostalgia and some of the reasons the coal is still around. Just yesterday, we celebrated the 4th of July, right? If, if there's a nostalgic holiday that we have, it's, it's Independence Day. This is the danger of nostalgia changing history. It's the day where we celebrate this separation from England, but we ignore the simultaneous separation from everyone else, from First Nations people, from African slaves, from anyone who was other. We, we ignore that separation and division. And we nostalgically look back to the separation from England. You see, nostalgia can be weaponized. It can be weaponized in culture. But it can also be weaponized within the church. And that's particularly what we're talking about this week. This week, we're talking about being new and not nostalgic. And our text is in Acts 15. We looked at this in our written devotionals a few weeks ago, but we're going to look at it in this way as well. We're going to pick up in verse 1, where it says, Then certain individuals came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to discuss the question with the apostles and the elders. I love this word, no small dissension or debate. So let, let me kind of clarify what's happening here. Peter and then Paul and Barnabas are going to Jews and Gentiles and announcing the good news of Jesus. And Gentiles all over the place are coming to faith in Jesus, are, are recognizing the grace of God at work in their lives, are being baptized, are being celebrated as sisters and brothers in this new faith. And then there was a group from Judea who came and said, hey, that's great that the Holy Spirit is on you. Hey, that's great that you've accepted the grace of Jesus, but it's not really yours. You're not really in the faith unless you come through the same door that we do, unless you come through circumcision. You see, you have to be circumcised in order to have faith in Jesus. And this is where that no small dissension came in. Paul and Barnabas were saying, no, the Holy Spirit is evidence of their faith, evidence of God at work. And, and these people from Judea were saying, well, it, it doesn't matter. You still need to do this work. You still need to be circumcised. The scholar that I've pointed out to you before, Willie James Jennings, he said that this is an issue of control of the unknown and a way to domesticate the difference. See, there were these people who were different, who were Gentiles, and, 
And these Jewish, formerly Jewish believers want to look at them and say, no, you need to be tamed, domesticated, made like us, because if all of a sudden anybody can be in, then will we lose all control? If you don't have to go through the door that we came through, then we have no way to predict what's about to happen. And I would say the church is there today too. And even the church today is, not, is wanting to distance from difference. Is grabbing for control. And truthfully, when we lack control is when we are most nostalgic. When we're afraid that things are being changed within us and being threatened within us, that's when we grab for this nostalgic past that is most weaponized and most dangerous. So nostalgia always has markers to make distinctions in the difference. In the book of Acts, the markers are, are circumcision and dietary laws. That's what the people of Judea were saying. Hey, you need to have these things so that we can look at you and know that you're one of us. So I can go to the gymnasium and know, yeah, you went through the door of circumcision and now you're a believer in Jesus. Or I could sit at the table and by what you choose not to eat... I can know that you are a follower of Jesus. But Peter speaks. Peter speaks of this beautiful encounter he has with Cornelius where his heart is transformed. He stays put with Cornelius. It's recorded in Acts 10, but here in Acts 15.7, we see that Peter stood up and said, My brothers... You know that in the early days God made a choice among you that I should be the one through whom the Gentiles would hear the message of the good news and become believers. And God, who knows the human heart, testified to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as He did to us. And in cleansing their hearts by faith, He has made no distinction between them and us. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing on the neck of the disciples a yoke that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear. It's a powerful message. He's saying, I've seen with my own eyes how the Holy Spirit has drawn no distinction between people who are circumcised and non-circumcised, by people who have come through the Jewish faith and have come from an, another place. There is no distinction with God, so why would there be distinction with us? If we see evidence of the Holy Spirit, then why would we ask for more? And then he calls them to remember accurately. Hey, this yoke that you're trying to put on these Gentiles, this yoke of circumcision and dietary laws and the, and the law in general, that's a yoke that we couldn't carry and our ancestors didn't carry. So why would we put that on someone new? This echoes something that Jesus said. It's recorded in, in Luke 11 where he says, Woe also to you lawyers, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not lift a finger to ease them. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your ancestors killed. So you are witnesses and approve of the deeds of your ancestors, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. He's saying you need to pay attention to your history. You need to pay attention to the story that you're telling yourself to the nostalgia that you have. It's great that you honor the prophets, but remember, your ancestors killed them. 
It's great that you now want a tomb for the prophets, but remember that it is your ancestors who placed them in the tomb. And so don't ignore your history. You see, for all times, people have forgot or changed history, and now these public tombs that Jesus is speaking about tell a different story. So a few months ago, I was praying about this idea of us being new, and I was on a walk, and I started a podcast, this one that I listen to often called Solvable, where the former mayor of New Orleans, Mitch Landro, was on. And one of the things that Mitch did in his term is he had the celebration of New Orleans history happen. And, and so he asked some people, hey, what is it that we need to do? How do we best celebrate this? And a jazz artist there in New Orleans said, hey, I want to ask you to pay attention to something. I think it's time that you remove this Confederate monument. And this is well before the movement now to remove monuments. Mitch asked, what is, you know, tell me about it. Why should we remove this? And brings up the fact that Robert E. Lee, who is the statue here, never came to New Orleans. He's not from New Orleans. He never visited. There was no battle there that he won. But there was a statue built by the Daughters of the Confederacy that was placed right in the heart of New Orleans. It was placed by a mayor in, I believe, 1890. And it was placed there as a sign of intimidation and power, a reminder that the Confederacy may have lost, but they are still present. A reminder that this is not just state rights, this is slavery and hatred. This jazz artist reminded the mayor that this statue is the reason Louis Armstrong left New Orleans. He didn't feel welcome because the monument that was built was built to remind him of that. As I heard this story, I was reminded of a a meal that I had at Kristen and Craig Metter's house back when we did dinners for eight, and maybe we need to bring those back. But it was a great time to meet other people and sit around and dine. And I was telling a story that, you know, I'm from Minneapolis, and this is the first time down in, in the South where I had ever seen a house that the window drapes were confederate flags i was saying i've never seen that before i couldn't believe it i didn't know you could do that it made me nervous and one of the guys at the dinner jokingly said oh that might have been my uncle that might have been my family and i was like what do you mean and he's at this dinner that is black and white and, and we're talking about unity and he's saying well that's my heritage that's just my family that's what i come from It was a little bit of like an aw shucks moment. Like, well, I'm just celebrating my history. But not really. The Confederacy was five years. We don't really build monuments for five years very often. I mean, that's like undergrad for a lot of us. Whole family heritages aren't set up by five-year increments. It's much longer than that. The really the symbolic statues are about hatred and division. It is again a marker of distinction of the people who are and the people who aren't. So this movement to tear down statues makes a ton of sense to me. The real meaning of them is hidden behind nostalgia and heritage, violent control. Domesticating difference. 
But we're talking about the church here. And the church has really done the same thing. How is it that we become a member in a church? Or what's required for baptism? These are big challenges and big disagreements that happen. Who can serve and who can lead? What does faithfulness look like? And what stories will we celebrate? And who will we villainize? These are all narratives within any church, including one church, including in ours that are still being written right now. That we're making choices that we nostalgically look back on our past. We need to be wise and truthful. We need to follow Peter's lead. Look at what he, he next says in verse 11. He says, We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. You see, these people are, are trying to call everyone to have to go through this burdened yoke of circumcision and dietary laws, the same path that they had gone through. And Peter says, no, on the contrary, it's not that. The, the grace of Jesus saved them, and that's the same grace that will save us. It's this humble statement recognizing that the Holy Spirit is at work in these others that are trying to be forced through this door. Reality is living as Peter calls us to live here. It's scarier. There's no control. There's no difference that you can look at and point out and say that that, that person is with me or that person is on the outside. It's scarier, but this is the space where God's at work. This is the space where Jesus is leading His church. Makes me think of our conversations we had a few years ago about, about membership at one church. If you don't know yet, this is how membership is defined at one church. If you picture church as a family meal, as a Sunday family meal, as many of you had pre-COVID or maybe even are having now. If you picture church as, as that, and we are the family that you would come sit at the table of, then you're invited to be a member. That's it. We ask that you bring what you have, that you come worship, that you're present. But that's what membership looks like. There's no requirements on time and improving yourself and all of those kind of things. No, that, we believe that's not to be it. But that's difficult to get to that place. Because our experiences are part of us. I, I grew up Lutheran in the north and had a great experience, I don't remember it, but being baptized as a baby, but then going through what's called confirmation, which is several years of classes to confirm the baptism, meaning my parents made this commitment when I was a child, and I am now confirming that I agree with it. And for me, it wasn't everyone's experience, but for me, it was meaningful. I remember standing in front of the church and confirming, yes, I believe in Jesus. I believe that this grace is enough for me. And it was a powerful experience. And because it was powerful, or because it was difficult, or because it was mine, often we want to push everyone else through our same experience. So everybody should have to be confirmed. Or I went through Sunday school and it was a great experience or it was a lot, so everybody should have to go through it. We have a way of normalizing our experience and defining faithfulness in that way. But what if we're like Paul 
and Barnabas and Peter. And we see the Holy Spirit at work, and then we just draw attention to that and say, that's enough. In any way that we can remove the, the yoke, well, let, let's, let's do that. You see, as Acts 15 continues, Paul and Barnabas, they tell their experience. They begin to tell of how they've gone into synagogues and receive people who came to faith and receive resistance, and then they go and find Gentiles, and the Gentiles are coming to faith, and the Holy Spirit is on them, and that's, that's enough for them to be baptized. And then James, the brother of Jesus, stands up and makes the decision for the church and says, hey, here's what we're going to do. It's not required that you're circumcised. That's, we're not adding to. Just go back to the covenant of Noah Let's not eat strangled meat so that you can be at the table with anyone of Jewish descent. They won't feel unclean. And that's enough. And I encourage you, read through this. It's a powerful thing. But Willie James Jennings, again, draws our attention to something. You see, James seems to be aimed at removing impediments for communion. That's really important. What that means is anything that's between you and me being one together, James seems to be about removing those things. Such an essential step. But he stops there. We don't ever hear a Gentile voice recorded in Acts 15. They don't go and have a big meal and celebrate. Or take a weekend away together and hear stories over campfires. Willie James Jennings writes, What should be the goal of our words? The goal must be communion and joining. See, I believe right now the church is at a place of removing impediments, removing things that divide us, looking at everything and saying, is this necessary? And if it's a heavier yoke on you, why would I ask you to carry it? But that can't be the goal. We can't stop there. We've got to go to actual communion. Now back to this idea of nostalgia. I'm not saying we need to forget the past. Not even saying nostalgia is all bad. What I'm saying is we need to remember that God urges us to remember constantly. But we need to remember what God urges us to remember. We need to remember that He is faithful. We need to remember that we are fallen and He brings us back, that Jesus is leading His church. We need to remember that Christ is the hero in our risen power, Lord. We need to remember that because of all this, we are His beloved. And we're called to lay down our lives for His other beloveds. And any way that we were taught that we're distinct and other from other people, we don't ignore distinctions, but we definitely wrestle through so we no longer see others as others, but begin to see people as sisters and brothers. We need to remember that we're called to surrender control and power and authority. We need to remember that at those moments of surrender is when nostalgia offers us the sweetest of temptations. We need to remember that we get to lay all of that down, secure in our belovedness, and go to the table of Jesus, knowing that there's Jesus and all those He loves. See, at some point, we'll regather. But even last Sunday, as we were in the parking lot, 
seeing our neighbors again. I was reminded that we are the beloved. And as we regather, we are new. And we're to do this in new ways. Not holding on to the other that draws distinction and difference and division. So I'm going to pray. You've got a few ways that you can pray specifically with people. You can click on the prayer button and someone will meet you in a chat that's just personal for you guys. You also can go to the Zoom meeting in just a moment. People are there available to pray with you. But I want to give you three specific things to be praying for. First, I truly believe that some of us are being asked to forgive. And I don't say this lightly. But some of us have had impediment and impediment and impediment put in front of us. Some of us have constantly been pushed through side doors and asked to go do things to prove our dignity and worth, to prove that God is at work within us where the Holy Spirit should be enough. But we remember that we are beloved and we're called to Christ's beloveds. And so we need to get to a place where we can honestly forgive one another. And that's difficult and that's work. But the Holy Spirit within you is enough to lead you into that. And maybe for some of us, today is time to forgive, to move towards communion. For others of us, it's time to repent. We've held up nostalgia. We've held up versions of the past that have celebrated and uplifted us or others like us at the expense of other people. We have bought smaller versions of what God has done and we've hurt people along the way. Whether that was knowingly or we did it naively, it's time to be new. And it's time to repent, but it's also time to then be forgiven. Be forgiven by our Father, but also be forgiven by our sisters and brothers and enter back into community with one another. And finally, the third thing is for some of us, it's time to be family. Some of you have heard so often that you are an outsider, that you are another, that you've believed it. And yet now the grace of Jesus is pushing towards you, and I want you to know that it is enough for you. It's enough for me. It's the same thing for all of us. The grace of Jesus is enough to give you new life, to make you the beloved. And maybe, just maybe, today is the day for you to surrender to that. Maybe today is the day to believe that every boulder that's been put in your way, Jesus has obliterated to bring you home. And you've got sisters and brothers who are in process, who are learning, who would love to join you in celebrating, who would love to pray for you, and remind you that you're new, remind you that you're beloved, remind you that you're His. I'm going to pray for us all corporately. Go ahead and join by clicking or by going on the Zoom call in a moment, but let me pray for us all. Lord Jesus, we ask that you continue to lead your church. In all the ways that we've been nostalgic of our past, individually, collectively, we ask that you would forgive us and heal us of ways that we have stopped at removing impediments from communion and 
instead of really stepping to know one another and love one another, we ask that you'd forgive us and push us forward. God, would you, would you lead us as individuals? Would you lead us as one church? Would we be able to inherit what it is that you have for us? Would we know freedom and life, justice and peace in ways that we can only imagine today? Would you bring your kingdom here? Your powerful and risen name. Amen.